I want to ask you to turn to Psalm chapter 34 first. We're going to get to 1 Peter 3. We're going to start off in Psalm 34 because Peter quotes Psalm 34. Genesis 1 and 2 are amazing passages. As with every word in those first two chapters of, of the book, everything is teeming with and, and connected with and, and proclaims the beauty of perfection and the beauty of life. And in this small section of the vast universe that God has created, there's this little place called the Garden of Eden on this planet, Earth, where two people were living, and it was an unbelievable place. The beauty of life dominated everything. There was no death. There was no anything like that. And the tragedy of all tragedies takes place at the very end of Genesis chapter 3. Some of the saddest words in the Bible are written, and this is what they are. This is Genesis three twenty-two through 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever... Therefore the Lord Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed a cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So in the beginning there was this place where everything was connected to life. It was a place of joy, it was a place of happiness, it was a place of peace. There wasn't a need for forgiveness, there wasn't a need for any of that kind of stuff. And man sinned and man was cast from the garden and gone was this good life that they had experienced. Gone were the good days. Gone were the times when God came to the garden before sin had come and there was an intimacy with God and with one another that, had, that would never be known again until eventually God makes all things right in the future. And ever since that moment, we have been longing to get back inside the garden and we've been trying to figure out ways and invent ways and and to come up with things to try and fix what we know inside of us is broken and there is still an emptiness that dominates the world but through Christ God has provided a way that we can love life now even though sin is present and we can see good days and we can experience them and this will be our subject matter today I want to talk today about How do you see life in such a way that you love it, and because you love it, and because there's an intimacy with God and a walking with God in obedience, that that life is marked by good days, not dominated by days of doubt and days of wrestling, but days that are good and days of perspective. You know, you look at our culture, and you see a lot of times this, I call them anthems of emptiness, that um, musicians in our land or musicians in the world write. Um, I love, I, there are some voices that we're not going to get to hear in heaven like Frank Sinatra and Tony Bennett because those guys don't know the Lord and they didn't know the Lord. So I'm trying to enjoy them now because they're not going to be there. But Tony Bennett had a song that was very popular and every generation has those and it was called The Good Life and it said this, Oh, the good life, full of fun, seems to be the ideal. Oh, the good life lets you hide all the sadness that you feel. That was a top ten song, and it's just depressing, to be honest with you. The song is all about hiding what's wrong on the inside. With my generation, if you're of my generation, 
in the 80s, you too wrote a song that talked about they've scaled city walls, they've climbed the highest mountains, and they what? They still have not found what they are looking for. Ed Sheeran, in recent days, um, has written a song called Save Myself. It has been viewed 52,576,637 views on YouTube. And it was a very popular song, and listen to what he writes. I gave all my oxygen to people that could breathe, and I gave away all my money, and now we don't even speak. I drove miles and miles, but would you do the same for me? Oh, honestly, would you? I offered my shoulder just for you to cry upon, and I gave you constant shelter and a bed to keep you warm, and they gave me the heartache, and in return, I gave a song, and it goes on and on. His second verse says, I gave you all my energy and I took away your pain because human beings are destined to either radiate or drain. What line do we stand upon? Because from here it looks the same and only scars remain. And then the chorus is this. Life can get you down, so I just numb the way it feels. I drown it with a drink or out-of-date prescription pills. And all the ones that love me, they just left me on the shelf no farewell, so before I save someone else, I've got to save myself. Our culture has cried out since the Garden of Our culture is crying out, but since the Garden of Eden, every culture has cried out, what can rescue me? What can allow me to love this life and not be dominated by the sadness of this life? How do I see good days and know that God is for me God has done things for me. God will continue to move and to, and to do things. So as we come to the text today, here in a moment in 1 Peter 3, we're going, we need to read it through the lens of seeing what has been lost, but we also really need to see it through what has been given to us, because what has been given to us far outweighs and overpowers what has been lost. Because um, I love grace, but I wish sin had never entered the world. We, we, we would never want sin to come. We would, it would be incredible to still live in the environment of the Garden of Eden before sin had come. And I love the fact that even though sin has come, God, before the foundation of the world, He already had a plan. And His plan was grace and mercy and to rescue us. And so in the midst of our emptiness, in the midst of our crying out and trying to figure out things, God has done a great thing through Christ so that though this life at times can be really, really devastating, there is a way that you and I can can desire to love life and to see good days. And there's some principles today that are going to come to us. So Peter's going to rely heavily, heavily today on Psalm chapter 34. I want you to look with me there. Psalm 34 and look in verse 11. We're going to read 11 through 16. This is the backdrop for what Peter is going to share with us in chapter 3 today. So this is a, this is a Psalm of David. Um, David made some mistakes we're going to read about here in a moment before a guy named Ahimelech who was a priest. Ahimelech, he um, kind of drove him out and David went away. But listen to what David writes, Psalm thirty-four, eleven: Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, 
and his ears toward their cry, the face of the Lord against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. So this text was written by David during a very dark and difficult time of his life. If you remember, these psalms that David writes in this section, in Psalm 30 and on in the 40s, he is fleeing from King Saul, who Saul is trying to take David's life. And so David's kind of a refugee, and he's experiencing a number of different things, hiding out in caves and, and, trying, to, and trying to experience some things where he, can, he has safety. And I want to kind of give you the backdrop so you, and I, you can understand why David writes the things that he writes. He's been anointed to be king, and yet Saul is still king, and Saul is after him to kill him. So David, by God's design, has been anointed to be king, but he's not sitting on the throne. He's a refugee in the city or in the, in the nation being chased by Saul and Saul's men. And David's going from place to place trying to stay alive and kind of figure out life. His days are not marked by happiness and security. Waking up in the morning thinking, okay, wow, nobody's chasing me today. Uh, the king is not after me. His men are not after me. But that was every day. So I want you to go to second, or excuse me, First Samuel chapter 21 for a moment. And I want us to read the backdrop of why David wrote Psalm 34 about keeping our tongue, our lips from deceit, about our life turning away from evil. How do we see good days? How do we seek peace? Why did David write these words? So in First Samuel Chapter 21, in, in verse 1, um, let me get there. Let's start reading in verse 1. So then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, he's about to lie, he's about to speak deceit. Here's what he says. The king, Saul, has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such place. So this is what David tells Ahimelech. Now then, what do you have on hand? David's hungry and the men that are with him are kind of hiding or aren't around. They're going to meet him. They don't have any food. So he said, Give me loaves, five loaves of bread. Or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is the holy bread. And if the young men have kept themselves from women, um, and David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day that it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, and he detained, um, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. And David said to Himelech, um, Then have you here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me. And here he continues to lie because of the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that, give it to me. So David rose and from that and fled that day from Saul, and he went to Achish the king of Gath. And let me just stop for a moment. Do you remember where Goliath was from? Gath. So watch this. So David is on, he's running. 
He goes to Ahimelech, hey, um, we're hungry. Okay, I've only got the bread of the presence, um, but you're, the men that are with you, they've got to be pure men. They, they, they've got to be sexually pure men. They've got to be this, and so I'll give the bread of presence with you. So he leaves there, and David is so on the run, he's not thinking. He goes to the enemy of God to seek refuge in the enemy of God, and he goes to a place called Gath. Look what it says. Verse 11, And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. So they recognized this is the guy that killed Goliath. And so David took these words to heart and he was much afraid of Achish the king of Gath. So David pretended to be insane. Look at 13. So he changed his behavior before them and he pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and he let his spittle run down his beard. He kind of foamed at the mouth and spit on himself. And then Achish said to the servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Look at 22. So David flees. 22.1. David departed from there and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and he became commander over them. And they were there with him about 400 men. And from there, David went to Mizpah of Moab. And then he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. Look at verse 6 now. This is what happens because David lied and he was deceitful and he wasn't truthful and he sought out refuge from his enemy and from the enemy of God. Here's what eventually happened and why he wrote Psalm 34. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with a spear in his hand. And all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? And will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one disclosed this to me. When my son makes a covenant with the, the son of Jesse, none of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as this day. And then answered Doeg the Edomite who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for David and gave David provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Look at 11. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house and the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, Lord. And Saul said, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait at this day? And then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? And who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let the king, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to his house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all of this, much or little. And so Himelech is just basically saying this. Look, I don't know what your deal is with David. David came and I helped David. He's your son-in-law, and I felt like I needed to do so. But here's the deal. David wasn't truthful with Ahimelech. This may cost you, Ahimelech, as I come and you help me. This may cost you something. And it really did cost a lot, because look what happens now. Look at 17. 
And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord. Saul was mad at this time, just crazy in his mind, because their hand is also with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king, who would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and he struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. So David later writes Psalm 34, looking back over this incident going, I've made some real mistakes. Trying to preserve my life and trying to find life, I used my tongue to lie. I spoke deceit with my lips. I sought refuge from my enemy. I should have just been trusting God. Yeah, Saul was after me. I should have sought peace with Saul. I should have tried to figure out a way. How do I make peace with Saul? What can I do? And because I didn't do that, this incredible devastation took place. And so David later writes Psalm 34, reflecting on what his mouth did, what his heart was doing, what he was crying out for himself. And so now today, go to 1 Peter 3. Peter's going to share with us this perspective from David, and he's going to share it with us. David's perspective, Peter's going to use it for us so that you and I will understand that God's heart and God's purpose for us is not to make those kinds of decisions. There are some things that should be a part of our life that will enable us to love life and see good days and not see the fallout of the consequences that took place that we just read in 1 Samuel 21 and 22. So let's look at the text, 1 Peter chapter 3, and let's read. Let's put it all together last week and this week because they kind of are all hinged together. So David says, finally, all of you, Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and an humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Everything's hinged on the next verse, verse 10. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So let's stop here for a moment. Let's walk through the text, and let's see what God has for us this morning. What a great message for Father's Day today. If fathers want to see a good life, good days, what, is that, what does that look like? What does it look like for you as a mom? What does that look like for you as a wife and a husband? What does it look like for you as a kid or a student? What does it look like? How do I love life? And how do I live in such a way that I see good days? What do I need to keep myself from? What do I need to stand on? What do I need to embrace? And so God is going to give us some great counsel this morning. So here's what Peter says, is that there is to be a pursuit. There's a natural pursuit and a natural longing in all of our lives, wanting and desiring the good life. So here's what Peter says, quoting David. For whoever, for whoever desires to love life 
and see good days. So all of us, I would think we would all say today, boy, I want that to mark my life. I don't want to, by my life or by my words, to write a story that says, I did not enjoy life. Now, some days, let's just be honest, they're not great, are they? They're just not, just hard. I had one of those days yesterday, to be honest with you. Do you ever one of those days where you just, you feel a certain way, and you're just like, I don't know where this has come from. Nothing has really happened. And I had one of those days yesterday, just a weird emotional day of just, of just, dealing with things and not enjoying life like I should have. And so what do we do in the midst of those moments? How do we regain focus? How do we, how do we understand what God planned, has planned for us and what God has purpose for us? So the fact that these words are written by David and the fact that these words are quoted by Peter through the Spirit to us and they've come to us, they indicate this to us, that there is a way in life to really love life and to love it in such a way in spite of the pain, inside of the heartache that sometimes comes. And there's a way in the midst of that to see good days. But they are not what the culture says and what our world says needs to be a part of our lives. So here Peter says this, quoting David, for whoever, whoever it is, anybody in the room this morning, from the youngest to the oldest, whoever it is this morning, for whoever desires, has that yearning inside of them of, I want to love life, I want to enjoy it, I want joy to be deep inside of me, whoever would desire to love life and see good days. This word life is not just breathing, it's a Greek word, um, Remember Zoe, there was a music group I think called Zoe Girl not too long. That in the Greek means life. It means not biology, not that we're physical beings. It means every bit of our life. It means our social aspect, our work aspect, our relational aspect. It means literally everything. Whoever desires that every bit of our life it can be loved, what do we need to do? Now it's interesting what David says is not on the list that we're going to see in a moment. He doesn't say money is not listed there. Whoever desires to love life and see good days needs to have a lot of money. It's not an ability to travel. It's not on the list. It's not material possessions. It's not sexual freedom. It's not the best foods that you are able to eat. Whoever desires to love life and see good days needs to be able to do this. It's not fine clothing. It's not beauty. It's not any of those things. David writes because he learned a lesson. And Peter writes here under the inspiration of the Spirit to say this. You can't f- be focused on those things. You've got to be focused on the things that are inside. The things that really matter. The things that have substance with who God is. So what is the good life? What's the good life? It's a great question. So whoever desires to love life and see good days. We all want that. We all desire it. What is it? I think the Apostle Paul had figured it out. I think some of us has figured it out. This is what Paul said. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because in my death I get Christ. If I am to live in the flesh, it means fruitful labor to me. I get to continue on ministering and proclaiming who God is. And yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. Because Paul's in prison. He Possibly death is coming to him. It's not going to come in this moment when he's writing these things. It comes later for him. And he says, I'm hard-pressed between the two about staying here and being alive or going on to be with him forever in eternity. My desire is to depart and go with him, not to stay here. 
and be with Christ, for that is far better. Later he said it like this, this is the good life. Indeed, I count everything, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. So I, the good life is connected in intimacy with Christ. It's connected with knowing Him. And then he says this, he says, For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count all the things that have been credited to me, I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So David learned this, and he writes it in Psalm 34. Man, I have made some mistakes about this, and it cost This city where all the children, they were killed because instead of trusting the Lord to be my protection, I kind of tried to work things out on my own. I sought protection from the enemy and that got word out um, and I had to pretend and I had to lie and I had to pretend like I was an insane man. And so the call for us today is this, for whoever desires to love life, And to see good days, the good days, the good life, the loving life is connected to knowing God in a relationship with Him. Nothing can get in the way. Nothing needs to be exalted to be at that place. And this is a mandate for us to enjoy life. And it's it's implied here strongly that this desire to love life and this desire to see good days is something that we should take seriously. We should want to do that. We should pursue that, but we should pursue it in the right kind of way, not connected to stuff, but connected to our relationship with Him. And you know when the best time to do this is? The best time to do this is when you're young. I I quoted this last week. At the end of this book, Ecclesiastes, where Solomon said, I tried everything in the world to do, I amassed things, I spent money, had all this kind of stuff, and it was all just empty. And so when he concluded it in chapter 12, he said these words, Ecclesiastes 12.1, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. The best time to learn how to love life and desire life is when you're young. So Carter, today is the day that you ought to start building principles in your life to love life. Andrew, same for you. God wants us to desire a good life and to see good days, but it is not going to happen separate from Him. It's going to happen when there's an intimacy with Him and walking with Him. So guys like Andrew and Carter and and all of the young Canyon in here, who else is back there? Sarah's back there. God desires every young person here today to learn. Today's the day I need to walk with God. Today's the day I need to decide to walk with God. Because when I get old like the pastor, he's going to look back over his life and go, gosh, did have I made the right choices along the way? And if you're not careful, we older people will build a life that's not based on what matters. And we look back over our life and say, we wasted days. We didn't count the cost and see that God wanted us to experience joy and purpose and direction. And we missed it because we spent it on a career. or We spent it on trying to accumulate things. And so Solomon says, decide young. 
that if you want to love life and you want to experience life, you do so in the early days of your life and to do so in such a way that we walk with Him. So let's look now, what are the principles in 10 through 12 that He gives us the lifestyle of the good life? And those of us, you remember Robin Leach? Ed, you're old enough. You remember Robin Leach, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. So if you can hear me say that today, lifestyle of the godly. Um, this is the lifestyle of the good life. This is what this looks like. So let's, let me just remind us. So here's what Peter says. For whoever desires to love life, I want to love life, I want to experience abundant life and see good days, what do we do? The first principle is this. I think we've got it up on the screen is you live your life according to Scripture. You live your life according to Scripture. The lifestyle of living life the way God has designed it and seeing good days is grounded in the Scripture. Here's why I say that, first point. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it this morning. Here's why I say that. 1 Samuel 21 and 22 is the story. David learned a lesson. So he writes Psalm chapter 34, reflecting on that. Now Peter, at about AD 60, is writing to scattered believers who are being chased by Nero, and they are persecuted. They've settled in five places in Asia Minor, trying to get their life going again. And he's drawing on the lessons David learned, saying to these people who had been pursued by Nero, listen, It may look like you don't have the good life, but I want to tell you, you do because you have been rescued and you've been given inheritance because of what Christ has done for you. And so Peter draws upon this Old Testament Scripture. He brings it into the New Testament setting, saying this, Old Testament, New Testament, the teaching of Scripture and the life lessons and the foundation of those things, they need to be what you know so that you can love life and live it in such a way that honors God. So if you and I desire to love life and we want to see good days, it must be lived according to the Scripture. So Peter is not going, okay, I'm just writing some phrases here. He's saying this, listen, we as Jewish people, we have learned from David's mistake and the life lesson, and I want to Write to you now, New Testament church, you've got to live according to the Scripture. Proverbs 4.20 says this, My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Don't let God's word out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them. And they are healing to all of their flesh, not just part of it. Keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it flow the issues of life. Put away from you crooked speech. Put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet. Then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left and turn your foot away from evil. There's a consistent theme throughout the scripture, Old Testament, New Testament. Watch your mouth, turn away from evil, turn away what you say from evil, and walk according to what God's purpose is. So if you and I desire to live life today, or love life today, and you and I desire to see good days, then we've got to live according to the Scripture. Secondly, 
We've got to have a mouth that's restrained. So he says in the next part of verse 10, he says, Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. This word keep means to stop. It's in the active voice, and therefore it means you've got to be aggressive in keeping our tongue from saying anything not honorable to Christ and uplifting to others. Notice this. Let him keep his tongue from speaking evil. There is a personal responsibility that is kept with this. If you're married, you can relate to this, what I'm about to say. We've all said this to one another, except for people like the Needhams because they're so holy and perfect. But some of us have probably said things like this. Well, I wouldn't have said this to you if you wouldn't have said that. But when you say that and when you do that, it causes me to just do and we excuse ourselves. And so Peter and David both say, Psalm 34, 1 Peter 3. And John, you need to hear this because Lindsay's talked to me about you. Okay? So you need to quickly get back in here, okay? Listen, he says this. It's your responsibility. You can't blame anybody else when your tongue goes haywire. It's your responsibility to keep a guard on that. We know James chapter 1 is, is brutal. James is a brutal book. And here's, here's some things James has to say about the tongue. James one twenty six. If anyone thinks he is religious but does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless. James 3, 5 says this, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great is a forest is how great a f- How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. That's what it's called. James 3, 7. For every kind of beast and bird, reptile, sea creature, they can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Psalm 12, 3. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips the tongue that makes great boasts, and those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, with our lips, oh, uh, our lips are with us, who is master over us? Proverbs twelve eighteen. there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, thrusting of the sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs fifteen two. the tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of, the, of fools pour out folly. A gentle tongue, Proverbs 15, 4 says, is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. So if you want to love life and you want to see good days, we have to have a mouth that's restrained. Not only do we have to have a mouth that's restrained, but we have to keep our lips from speaking deceit. This word deceit means to set a trap, means to set a trap. There is to be no deceit in our mouths. Nothing that leads others astray. When we speak, our words should be an an accurate representation of the truth. So we are called here to be committed to the truth. David, after he had sinned with Bathsheba and was confronted by the prophet Nathan, wrote these words in Psalm 51.6. Behold, God, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Proverbs 4, 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is noble, 
Proverbs 3.3, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart. So we're going to be the kind of people who restrain our tongue and we don't speak deceit to kind of maneuver things and manipulate things for ourselves because we are to be the kind of people that are against lying and that are against deception. So whoever desires to love life and see good days, they build their life on the Scripture, they restrain their tongue, they don't use their lips to speak deceit, and then not only that, but they literally with their body, they turn away from evil. And that's what he says this. Let him turn away from evil, and not just turn away from it, but then to do something. It's, it's one thing to go toward it, but once you recognize, okay, this is not what I need to do, to turn away from evil, and then the Scripture says, and then do good. Turn away from evil and do good. So there is a deliberate choice that we are to make if we're going to love life and see good days where we turn away from evil. Listen to what the Scripture says about Job. Job 1.1 There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and he was upright, one who feared God, and his life was marked by this. This is how verse 1 ends, and turned away from evil. Why was Job such an upright man? Because he practiced in his life turning away from that which was evil. A Christian is to be the kind of person who avoids all forms of evil Because the Christian knows that sin only destroys the relationship with God. Listen to this. 1 Thessalonians 5.22 Abstain from every form of evil. That means we don't go to that website. That means we don't turn on that channel. We don't go there. We turn away. The word turn away from in the Greek literally means to bend aside in the path. You ever been riding a bike down there and a branch is out on the road and you've got to bend over? That's the idea. Even when evil comes out and you're not ready for it and it's there, you bend away so that it will not touch you so that you can pass by it. David, this is a direct quote from David. Peter makes here, Psalm 34, 14. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. This word do good means that which is excellence and highly virtuous. So it's the idea of I turn away from that which is evil and I turn to that which is God-honoring, honorable, biblical, right, praiseworthy. Paul said it like this. This is Romans twelve nine. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So Peter writes, David, Peter writes, learning from the counsel of David, if you want to love life and see good days, you will stand on Scripture and you'll live according to Scripture. We will restrain our mouth from speaking evil, in using our lips to speak deceit, and then we will make a deliberate choice to turn away from sin because evil things destroy us. Next, he says this. He says, and let him seek peace and pursue it. Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, 
for they shall be called the sons of God. God is a reconciling God. And so if we're going to be like Him, we seek peace. So this word seek here means an intentional choice that is unwavering. We are not to be those who stir up trouble with our mouth and with our life. The word peace here in the Greek means a constant place of tranquility that brings an inner joy. So for whoever desires to love their life that God has given them and see good days, let them stand on Scripture. Let them restrain their mouth to not even speak words of deceit. Let them be that kind of person. Let them turn away from evil and do good to do what is honorable. And let them be people who seek peace and pursue it. This word pursue in the Greek describes an animal hunting down their prey. Listen to what that's calling us to do. You, me, seek peace with others in such a way that we hunt it down like a lion hunts down its prey. You seek peace, pursue peace in this kind of way. We are to be peacemakers, but never at the expense of compromising the truth. Because sometimes we compromise the truth just to make peace, but we shouldn't do that. But we are to be the kind of people who seek peace. All right, let's look at the third thing this morning. Is there an assurance that this is true? can come to pass. So Peter says, forever desires to love life and see good days. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. What's God going to do in the midst of that? Well, here's what God does in the next verse, first part of verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. So I want to talk about two things just for a moment. And I want to talk about the assurance of the good life that God says if we will walk with Him and we will watch our mouth, we will turn away from evil, we will seek to be reconcilers as best as we can. As a matter of fact, I want to read this passage. I should have read it. This is Romans 12, 18 through 21. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And I want to talk about that for a moment. Sometimes you just can't come to a place of peace and a place of agreement in a relationship. And it's just the reality of it. But the call is that we pursue it in such a way that we try to do all that we can in regard to that. So if possible, so far as it depends on you, you live peaceably with others. Beloved, he says in verse 19, never avenge yourselves, but you leave it to the wrath of God. So if somebody's bad-mouthing us, somebody's doing something and we're trying, to, we're trying to reconcile and we're trying to do something with it and you just can't get to the place, you don't avenge yourself, you just leave it with the Lord. For God says, it is written, vengeance is mine and I will repay to the Lord. Romans 12, 20 says, to the contrary, if your, many, if your enemy is hungry, you feed them. If he's thirsty, you give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on their head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by what? What does he say? By good. We are called to be good people. So sometimes that means this. Listen to me. Sometimes we're just... 
I'm not OCDC. I'm OCDC. <laughs> Whatever that is. That's a new condition. I just made it up. So y'all pray for me. I'm OCDC. Um, because I worked at Walmart when I first moved back from Germany, shopping carts in the Walmart parking lot drive me crazy if they're not put in the right place. And so some of y'all I don't like. <laughs> and so I... Because I remembered I had to work there, and, and we had to make buggy runs. We had to go out there, and we had to put stuff up. And I remember how frustrating it was, how hot it was when I was working in September in the middle of the night on the night shift, putting those buggies up. So I, even though it's not extending the gospel at all, I get the buggies, and I put them in the thing, and I line them up. Now, I'm not trying to bag on myself, but you do stuff like that too. Listen to me. My point is this. Christians ought to be the best citizens of this country. We ought to do stuff that nobody notices and nobody sees. It just, it's something that's good that needs to be done. That means, here's a, here's a life example, church example. That means when Martha Dennis puts together pages for your children to write in color on Sunday morning and they leave them on church property, you're not going, okay, Mark and Doak will take care of this tomorrow, or at night tomorrow night. Mark and Doak will take care of that Tuesday morning. We are to be the kind of people who pick up. Well, I didn't do it. Parents, how well do you like that when your kids say, well, I didn't make that mess. I don't care. I told you, take the stuff to the sink. The point is simply this. We are to be the kind of people who are the best people. We just do good. Whether it's the proclamation of the gospel or just doing kind, nice things and help being helpful, we are to be those kind of people. So what's the assurance that if we live this way, God's on board with that? There's going to be, there's going to be we don't do it for reward, but what, how do we know that, that God notices and sees us? And here's what, here's what Peter says, quoting from David. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. God sees what we do when we live honorably and we live in such a way that glorifies Him in the simple ways and all these things. When we do so, there is a watchfulness of God that He sees what we do. All through the Old Testament, this phrase, eyes of the Lord, are mentioned. And there's some beautiful ones. Here's one of them. Second Chronicles 16.9 For the eyes of the Lord Listen how beautiful this is. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give support to those whose heart is blameless toward God. So God right now all over the earth is looking. And He's seeing those in China. Seeing those in Dominican Republic. He's seeing those in America. He's seeing those... Um, in Nepal, and he's seeing those whose heart is righteous, and he's roaming, and he sees, and he uplifts them in the midst of where they are. His eyes are on the righteous. So there's an assurance of the good life that God's just not up there, and he's just so busy that he doesn't know what we're doing. No, his eyes know. As a matter of fact, listen to this. Psalm 139.1. Oh, Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit down. And you know when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. God, you don't even have to be in the room to know what I'm thinking. You search out my path, my lying down, and you are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, 
you know it all together. You hem me in behind, before, and you lay your hand upon me. And God, such knowledge that you're this way, David says, is, wonderful, is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So what's the assurance of the good life? The assurance of the good life is God has his eyes on the righteous. Isn't that encouraging today? Because some of us live lives and nobody's really going to notice much, but God does. That's what matters. That's what matters. So not only is there a watchfulness of God, that there is an attentiveness of God. His ears are open to our prayer. That's amazing. Not only has his eyes on us, but he also hears our prayers. This passage is taken here from Psalm 34, 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous in the direction of the righteous and his ears toward their cry. This word are open in the Greek means this. It means to bend down to listen. Did you hear that? The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open. He bends down when the righteous pray. And he listens. So you think, man, God hear my heart when I'm walking with him. You better believe he does. He's peering down and listening, leaning down to listen to the cry of our heart. And if you have a picture today of him, that he is one who turns away and is disinterested, that is not true. It's a false one. He leans his ear in to his children. Lastly, the rejection of the good life. Can you miss out on life? Yeah, you can. Can I give you a story real quick? Peyton's birthday was Thursday, and we, you, your family may be like our family. We've waited about 15 years for The Incredibles 2 to come out, and it came out. So Peyton wanted to go. We kind of waited late. We couldn't go till 1025 on Thursday night, and for about the past 10 days, I've been literally exhausted. I'm not sure what's going on, but I've just been absolutely tired, can't stay awake. Last week, I fell asleep twice on my, uh, in my chair here, so... Um, I, had to, I had to take two quick trips. Don't, don't be worried about my health. Um, but I just, I just haven't slept much, and I've just been really, really tired. So we went to the movie at 1025 the other night. Previews, it started at 11. I can't tell you what the movie's about because I slept through all of it. <laughs> I don't know. I saw a little bit of the first part of The Incredibles too. I saw a little bit of the beginning, of the middle, and I have no idea how it ended because... Uh, I woke up as the credits were coming up, and everybody was kind of starting to stir. So I don't. I, I have. I have no testimony if that movie's great or not. You got to talk to my family members. You know, the concern for us is what I experienced on Thursday night. That we would be a believer, knowing that Jesus is the answer to life, but we would sleep through life, and we would miss the beauty of the story that we could experience and see. I literally have no testimony of the Incredibles. Really, I do not. How sad would it be to live a life of being connected in the church but never really pursuing God and seeing that you wasted your life? Here's why. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and His ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
So if you're a Christ follower and you want to live for yourself or we want to live for ourselves and we want to pursue the things of this world and we want to forget about God and want to build our life on Scripture, we want to just say whatever we want to say, we want to use our lips to be deceitful, we want to pursue evil and not do good, we want to stir up trouble instead of seeking peace and pursuing it as an animal hunts down its prey, we, we can do that. But that's, that's a life that's going to be rejected by God. God rejects that life. Now, you still may go to heaven. Sometimes I have, I have questions about those who claim to be a believer, but for decades of their life, there's no fruit, there's no pursuit of knowing God because I believe those who God rescues, they pursue Him. Now, not perfectly, but there's got to be some time in our life that we walk with Him. There's evidence that we've been transformed. And God is against those who want to live for themselves. So you might be a believer, and you, you, and you and I live for ourselves. God's face is going to, he's against that. He's against believers who live that way, and he's against lost people who live that way. Let me give you one example as we close. Judges chapter 13 is this unbelievable story of this family whom an angel of the Lord shows up and the couple is really old. And they say, hey, listen, God's going to give you a son and he's going to be used to deliver Israel from their enemy. At that time in Judges 13, it was the hand of the Philistines. The man's name was Manoah. We don't know the name of his wife. But they were told God has a message for you A divine purpose is going to be connected to your son. He's going to rescue Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And so the parents decide to pursue God. And they want to do everything that they can to honor God. So they do everything to honor God. And and this young man is born and his name is Samson. His name means little ray of sunshine. He was to be a light in his generation for the glory of God. The end of chapter 13 tells us that he grew physically, that his life was actively blessed by God. It says that God was stirring in him and moving in him. And the moving and the stirring of the Spirit in 13.24 just says that it indicates that there was a faith in Samson's life where he was a pursuer of God. Well, you get to chapter 14 and Samson has a problem and it's girls. He sees a girl one day and goes... Wow, man, she's pretty. Well, she's a Philistine. She's not a Jew. And she come, he comes back and says, hey, I found the girl I want to marry. Parents say, nice Jewish girl? Uh, no, Philistine. And the text tells us that God was kind of using the occasion to get Kim Samson kind of in, but it began to be a real problem for Samson. Well, they're going. They go and they meet the girl one day. They're coming back, and Samson kind of wanders away from his parents, and a lion comes roaring out at him. It's a young lion, but it's a lion, okay? It doesn't matter. A lion comes running out. Samson takes his hands and literally kills the lion, tears it apart. In the Hebrew, it means he rips the lion apart, and he throws the carcass aside. They go back home, and then it's time for the wedding. They're walking back to the wedding, and He's going back with his parents, and he thinks to himself, oh, yeah, remember, I killed that lion. And he doesn't tell anybody, so he goes and finds the carcass. When he gets to the carcass of the lion, some bees had come in, and they'd built a hive inside the the lion. 
And so he reaches in and he takes some honey out and he breaks one of his Nazarite vows, which was Nazarites couldn't touch dead bodies. And it says he goes and he goes to his parents and he gives some of the honey and the honeycomb to his parents. And it literally says in, um, in 14, 8 and 9, it says this, and he did not tell his parents. And the reason he didn't t- tell his parents because he had just broken one of his Nazarite vows. So he begins to keep secrets. This is a God follower who God's called upon his life was he would be the one that was going to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Well, the wedding doesn't go off real well. Uh, fiance uh, manipulates him all the way through. Uh, he tells the story. He's got this little riddle about the, the lion and the honey and, and the wedding's over and he goes away. He calls her a fat cow at the end of the wedding. <laughs> Don't do that, guys. Just give you some advice. Goes away, he gets back home, and he thinks to himself, gosh, she sure was pretty, so he decides he wants to go back and marry her. And he brings a goat back. That's the present that he brings. Here, knocks on the door. Hey, I got a goat for my wife. Um, and the father-in-law says, or his, would have been his father-in-law said, um, she married the best man of your wedding while you were gone. Samson gets mad. He grabs 300 foxes, ties their tails together, lights them on fire with the torch, and they burn up the grain fields. From there, he goes to a place where thousands of Philistines come at him. He grabs a jawbone of a donkey and he kills them all. He kills a thousand Philistine warriors. He's so tired after that that he complains to God of his thirst. And what's interesting at the end of chapter 15 is that it says these words. And it says, it says at the end, it said, And Samson judged Israel for 20 years. Now, the story in the Scripture text is not over yet. So why does it say that he judged Sam, He judged for 20 years? Watch this. It's the point of the illustration. Because he was done walking with God, and God was through with him. Because he started staying with prostitutes, and he eventually went to a place called Zorik, where he began living with a woman named Delilah. And three times during the night... While he was with Delilah, she weaved something into his hair. He was tied up twice. One of the Nazarite vows was, you cannot drink alcohol, can't touch alcohol, can't do it, can't be near it, can't do it. How do you weave something into hair and tie somebody up? You know how you do that? You're, you're passed out drunk. So he's broken that vow. And the darkness came in Samson's life where they took two red-hot pokers and they gouged his eyes out and burned his eyes out. God's will for Samson is that he would deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. God had such a love and purpose and plan for Samson. Guess what? We have to cooperate with God if we want the life of blessing. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and hunt it down. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous or with the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So whoever today in this room today desires to love your life, and to see good days, it has to be connected to Jesus. 
Guess what the point again is? Jesus. He's the point of everything. Don't waste our lives. Don't waste our lives. His heart is for us. But we've got to walk in agreement with him. Let's pray together.